Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, January 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers and education advocates celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Mississippi's pre-K program. Then in part two of our conversation on teacher attrition, we look at which teachers are most impacted by exiting factors. Plus, today's History is Lunch examines the Delta's Chinese community. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Remember the moments when we break through, when we change the course of history, when we do things that will be talked about for years to come, and let's pursue those things so that we can leave behind markers to remind future generations of how far Mississippi has come, but even more so, where we can truly go in the future. That's Hattiesburg Mayor Toby Barker speaking yesterday at the Capitol in Jackson. The former legislator delivered the keynote address celebrating the 10-year anniversary of a bill he filed in 2013 that led to the creation of Mississippi's pre-K program. The Early Learning Collaborative Act established a system in Mississippi where children are able to attend pre-K classes within their community at no cost that can prepare them for primary schooling. There are currently 35 state-funded early learning locations across the state, serving up to 25% of all four-year-olds. Republican Senator Bryce Wiggins helped pass the legislation in 2013. He tells our Kobe Vance it's helped Mississippi rethink education. Nobody needs to say that Mississippi doesn't know what we're doing in education. Because as you can see here today, We know what we're doing in early education and all the gains that we've had in different areas of education. We are truly the Mississippi miracle. And the nation has taken note. Uh, um, Other areas are taking note. And I think what you heard here today is about the seeds that got started and the gains that we've made over the last 10 years got started that year, 2013. And there was a lot going on. And I just hope that people recognize what we've done, and I think they do, and I certainly know the legislature does. And it's something to be proud of. And, uh, yes, we get a lot of negativity for various reasons, but there's a tremendous amount of positive 
going on in this state, particularly in education and particularly in early education. And I hope people will uh, jump on board and ride with us on it. But I'll say this, too. Seeing all these folks here, Mississippi First, Mayor Barker, uh, um, Holly Spivey, it's so good to see them because what we worked on 10 years ago. And to know that our efforts are paying off uh, for our children, but for our state as a whole, is just tremendous. So it's great to see them on a personal note. I wanted to get your thoughts on the future of early learning collaboratives. Where do you think Mississippi can go from here? Oh, well, I think we can, uh, the sky's the limit in terms of uh, the early learning collaboratives and, and where we can go with it. The key, and, and this is what I think gets lost, but uh, I certainly will say it, the key to the success of the collaboratives, both within the legislature and within the results, is the high quality, okay? And it's the high quality nature of it that has led us to, uh, to these gains. And so we have to continue with the high quality part of it. And the data is there. Uh, you're seeing the legislative support there. And that's because of the high quality nature. And we cannot let that slide because that's the, that's the secret sauce in my opinion. And so as we're going forward, I see, I've heard and I've seen more and more areas of the state wanting to come on board but we have to have the high quality part of it uh, to succeed. What do you think it's going to take to get more people on board with expanding early learning collaboratives? Um, Representative McCarty has introduced a bill in the House that would expand it from 25% and start building it up to more accessibility across the state. Do you think there's, what do you think it's going to take? Yeah, look, uh, that's the next step in this. Um, and as you heard from the proclamation, we've reached 25%. And if you talk to the early education experts, that's where you want to, that's where you really need to be to start making a difference. And so um, uh, I'm all for it. And I want, I, the thing that I would say is that people that are interested, talk with the other collaboratives. It's designed that way. Learn from them as to how uh, these others did it and what, what can be done. And the key, another secret sauce of it, is that every collaborative is different. So it, it depends on where you are, and that's the key is making it to fit you. Uh, we'll help you, but you, you design it to fit your students and your children in your area. Republican Senator Bryce Wiggins of Pascagoula with our Kobe Vance. Coming up in part two of our conversation on teacher attrition, we look at which teachers are most impacted by exiting factors. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's teachers are eyeing the exit. 
That's according to a new report by the nonprofit, nonpartisan education organization, Mississippi First. Out of the nearly 7,000 teachers they surveyed in the state, more than half said they are considering a career change within the coming year. Torn Ballard is Mississippi First K-12 Policy Director. Yesterday, we examined the role money played in pushing teachers out the classroom. In part two of our conversation, we discuss which teachers are leaving and why to retain and recruit educators. Black teachers and other teachers of color are more likely to struggle economically. When we ask about their ability to afford basic necessities, they are more likely to be unable to afford things like food and housing. And these black teachers and teachers of color also tend to teach in our highest need districts, districts that are rated D and F on the accountability grade, districts that are critical teacher shortages. So in order to keep these teachers in the classroom, I think we really need to look at what makes these situations unique in some cases. So if we look at, you know, regardless of race, just teachers in these lower rate districts, they are actually way more likely to have student debt and higher levels of student debt. And that's one of the biggest predictors of attrition risk on our survey. So one of our policy recommendations to really help retain some of these teachers is to number one, expand the existing winter read teacher loan repayment program. Now, this is a great program that helps teachers repay some of their loans in exchange for teaching, and they even get more money if they're in a critical shortage district. The only problem is eligibility is very limited for the winter read program. So all we ask is that to expand the eligibility for winter read, so it includes teachers regardless of teaching experience, how they got into the profession, and what kind of license they have. The next policy recommendation that will help retain teachers in these districts who are disproportionately teachers of color is to simply offer a stipend to teachers in critical shortage areas. So offering a few thousand extra dollars to help retain teachers where they are needed most. On the eligibility for the Winter Read Teacher Loan Repayment Program, you said it's limited. How so? Who can get it? now. Yeah. So right now, the program, which is only in its second year right now, you have to be a first year teacher in order to get an award through Winter Read. Now, you can receive this assistance for up to three years, but you have to be a first year teacher when you enter. You also have to have entered through the traditional teaching route. So that means that you earned an education degree during your undergraduate degree rather than, you know, having gone and get like a master's in teaching coming from a different profession. And so that really narrows down the number of teachers who are eligible for this program. And as I mentioned earlier, the teachers at the greatest risk of leaving are not those first or second year teachers. It's teachers who are, you know, five to 10 years into the profession. And so you're saying what then? You want the it to be opened up to everyone and for what length of time? Yeah, so we don't want to change the overall length of time. We think that three years is a reasonable amount for people to receive these awards, but we want people to be able to be eligible for winter read even if they aren't getting it as a first-year teacher. So someone who, for instance, let's say has 10 years of experience, they also have, in many cases, have plenty of student debt 
that they need to help pay off. And that's maybe making them think about another profession. That 10-year teacher has also deserves to get that assistance, and we also need to retain that 10-year teacher as well. So we're saying doesn't matter how many years of experience you have, and it doesn't matter how you entered the profession. Winter Read should be open to all teachers. And another recommendation, lower the state health insurance premiums for teachers and their families. I'm Yes, very glad you asked about this one. So if you are a teacher who is single and you don't have any dependents, you know, no spouse, no kids, your health insurance through the state is almost free. You will pay no more than, say, like $46 a month. So it's not a bad deal. But as soon as you have either a spouse and or a child on your health care, your state health care, your premiums go up to up to $840 a month. Do the math, and that's actually over $10,000 a year in order to get state health insurance for a spouse and a child. Again, doing the math, that is one-third of the take-home pay of a starting teacher. So asking teachers to work over one-third of their take-home pay just to get their family on the state health insurance plan is asking far too much of teachers. So all we're asking for with the premiums is to offer the same subsidies or about maybe 50% of the subsidies that individual teachers get for their own health care and having that extend to health care for people's spouses and their children. Mississippi First is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that basically conducted this study. What are you going to do with this information? Also glad you asked about that. So I mentioned the three policy recommendations that we have from this survey. We are already in talks with legislators at the Capitol to pass bills that expand winter read, that create a critical shortage stipend, and lower premium contributions for teachers. And we are actually hearing legislators be fairly optimistic about the chances of some of this legislation going through. So on one hand, we are going to work at the state capitol to try to get compensation to increase for some of these teachers who are at the greatest risks of leaving. So on one hand, we are going to continue doing that advocacy. We're also going to continue to research and try to understand the challenges that teachers face. Obviously, this report focuses a lot on compensation, but when we ask teachers about, you know, factors in their career plans, people also talk about issues with administration. They talk about respect from, you know, parents, the public, politicians. And so we are going to continue to research and look into exactly what it is making teachers consider leaving and figuring out solutions so that they don't feel that they have to leave the classroom and they can remain exactly where they want to be and where we as a state need them to be. Torn Ballard of Mississippi First, thank you so much for sharing this survey and giving us some perspective on what teachers are saying and thinking. Well, thank you so much for your interest in this issue. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Today's History is Lunch examines the Delta's Chinese community. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. At the end of the Civil War, plantation owners in the South searched for a new labor force to replace newly freed enslaved workers. That's when the first Chinese men arrived in the Delta. The story of the Mississippi Delta Chinese are the subject of one of the chapters in the new book, Ethnic Heritage in Mississippi. Emily Jones is an archivist at Delta State University and co-author of that chapter. She's presenting her research during History is Lunch at the two museums at noon. She tells our Michael Guidry how the Chinese men arrived in the Delta and quickly shifted from laborers to successful merchants. What was found in archives and uh, within records in public spaces are um, pamphlets that were calling farmers to a meeting in Memphis uh, to discuss how to recruit a new labor force. Um, Post-Civil War, we're talking about Reconstruction. Um, We've got uh, freed men um, who once were slaves and a group of planters that are now looking for a labor force that they can still control, um, but they, they can also be very instrumental in just putting them right to work. We already had in existence in the world a recruiting agency, uh, several recruiting agencies that were pulling from uh, China and uh, the Guangdong province. So probably on a recommendation um, of another planting group of planters, they were passed the name, and the recruiting agency that ended up delivering the Chinese men to the Mississippi Delta were put uh, into work, and we got a little less than 400 men. The, the ultimate goal was to recruit 400 men, um, but less than 400 men that were delivered to the port in New Orleans, uh, late 1869, and by 1870, uh, they had been transferred from the big ships to the smaller riverboats and were being dropped off along the river to the plantations that had uh, sponsored their recruitment. Upon arrival, you said this transition kind of from from a farm labor force to um, a merchant group. Kind of, how did that happen? Uh, and and over you know what length of time? We have to assume, just because we have not found an an actual piece of documentation that says this was the reason why, but if you look at the 1870, the 1880, and the 1890 census reports from from Mississippi, from the Delta, you can see when the Chinese men are recorded as um, laborers in 1870. They are listed um, by the certain plantation name, plantation owner, um, as being laborers on that in that land. Then by 1880, their title has changed from laborer to merchant. And so whatever the impetus was, what we believe it to be and feel very strongly about is that 
you have two groups of people. You have a, a white planner class and you have a um, disenfranchised African-American class um, of freed men and women. They still have to operate as people within a community, within this society. And those who stayed and made the Delta their homes, they had to figure out how to um, trade and how to raise families and care for each other. So to trade and to um, uh, work together, this group of Chinese men came in at about the right time um, to transition from being just laborers in a field where they were not achieving the economic success that they thought they would be getting to becoming merchants. And when I say merchants, I'm talking about small little one-room stores with maybe just a countertop Mm -hmm. and some supplies. But they would be the merchants, they would be the stores that the African-American population would prefer over going back to commissaries. And so if you see our, in our 1880 census, these Chinese men who were originally recruited in 1870 to be laborers, they have taken this very important step to become merchants and are recorded as merchants. And that's two years before the federal government puts this law in place. Was there something brewing? You know, was there an awareness Mm -hmm. already among this group of men in the Delta that knew they needed to make that step in order to stay in America? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it also, uh, speaking of this time frame and this quick shift from being um, laborers to to merchants, and I I can't help but think of, of, you know, this, this span of 10 to 12 years that you're talking about prior to these systemically racist laws um, that were embedded in that, that 1890 Constitution, how much did that intersection play? Did that provide a small window for these these migrants to find some type of ability to shift into that, that, that merchant role? I think maybe that would have been – that's part of the, the um, magic of the Delta, the, the opportunity. You see it, and you make it work for the best that you can. Um, I think I think that the Chinese men who were here saw that as if we want to do what we what we set out to do, which was to become financially stable and wealthy as far as they could be, um, that they needed to move into that merchant status. And because we were still such in flux, you know, with who's in charge, what are the rules, what's a no and what's a yes. You know, like you said, um, there was the option to establish yourself and prove yourself that you are a merchant. You are a smart individual. You can contribute to the community positively. And, you know, after be after having a couple of years of being, you know, shop neighbors with, um, you know, the Lebanese, the Italians, the Jewish, you know, everybody in town – um, they all just became neighbor merchants of each other. And so there wasn't this, oh, you're different because you're Chinese. It was, this is a merchant that I respect because he can run a good business. Therefore, I have no problem with him. Uh, and then, I guess, lastly, is there anything you're going to be sharing uh, at History is Lunch that we haven't touched on that you think uh, is is worth mentioning? Everybody's story 
is their own, and it's told in their own voice. So I'm bringing a couple of voices with me. They are recordings, um, but I think when you hear the voices that are the Chinese of the Delta, um, without seeing who they are, they sound like your neighbor. And there's nothing that separates us from each other. And then when you see a face or you see a picture or see a location, that's when you go, oh, well, maybe they are a little different for me. And we realize that there's so much more that connects us. Uh, the, the fact that we've all been here, or I have, been here for generations of the Delta, um, you know, it, it's, there's more that connects us than separates us when we are of the Delta. So that's what I hope to bring with my voices. Well, well, thank you so much, uh, Emily Jones, archivist at Delta State University, presenting at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. We appreciate you uh, taking some time to share um, your work with us. Well, thank you very much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.